Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. I talk a lot in the show about paradigm shifts, and that's because I do think that we are in the process of a paradigm shift, and there's all sorts of shifting going on. I tend to focus on shifts in science and religion with the notion that we need to go beyond what we now call science and religion to reach a new point of knowledge unity. But these paradigm shifts are going around all around us. And the, these include paradigm shifts in leadership, inspiration, training, and in the corporate world. It leads to the question of how do you change the world? How do you change society? And I, I go back and forth with do you change it from the top down by changing the thought leaders, by waiting them to by, by waiting for them to pass away to for the new generation to come on and, and instill new ideas, or do you change it from the bottom up, from the grassroots level? And on that particular question I do not have an answer. I have a feeling that the that the answer is really somewhere in between. But today we're going to be talking about a paradigm shift occurring in the leadership realm, in the corporate realm, in the organizational realm, remembering that organizations can be as small as your family and as large as the global community. So by talking about leadership changes, I'm not necessarily talking about McDonald's and Google. I'm really talking about society at large, and we're lucky enough to have with us today one of the leaders in this field. His name is Lance Secretin, who's well-known in the field of leadership training. He has put together his thoughts over the years in a great book called The Spark, the Flame, and the Torch. Now, Mr. Secretin, Lance is the former CEO of Fortune 100 Company. He's been a university professor an award-winning columnist, poet, and author of 15 books about inspiration and leadership. He coaches and advises leaders around the world and guides these teams, these leadership teams, to transfer, transform their culture into the most inspirational in their industries. He's helped six companies to be named to the Fortune's, Fortune's Best Companies to Work For in American List and eight Others are also his clients. He's highly ranked in the world by leadership gurus and speakers in America, ranks him among the top five leadership speakers. His firm, the Secretin Center, is ranked number one in the world as an international leadership consulting firm 
by Leadership Excellence. So we are in good company today. Lance, thank you very much for joining us today from Canada, I understand. Is that right? Yes, it is. I'm good to be with you, Philip. Well, uh, I, as I was saying, I'm, I'm not doing this show as frequently as I have in the past because of competing, um, con- because of competing uh, jobs and tasks. But when I do, I try to pick out somebody that's really going to add value to this show. And I'm lucky to have uh, Lance on the on the show right now because, as I said in the introduction, his book, The Spark, The Flame, and The Torch, is really a compilation of some leading-edge ideas in leadership training and, and how to change the world by changing who we are and how we relate to people. Now, first of all, Lance, for those who might not know um, about you, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you wound up doing what you're doing today? Well, I was originally, as you said, uh, running a Fortune 100 company. When I left, uh, I went to the university world, and I thought I'd share what I had been practicing over the years, discovered that what was being taught in the university was so far away from what I'd actually been doing that it felt like another world and gave me a good insight into what's wrong with what's going on in business today because we're very dependent on the university system for informing us, you know, through the MBA programs and so on. So I wrote my own book, became a bestseller, and was really my teaching text. But clients started to call me and uh, ask me to consult with them, and eventually my, my consulting work overtook my teaching work. So I started consulting full-time. And then over the years, I've really uh, created new iterations on my leadership thinking. But that book actually was a management book, not even a leadership book. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, I think that what you said about the contrast between the corporate world and the world of the university is important in many ways because one of the one of the problems that I'm seeing that we have is that the the universities not only in this field in in leadership or or, or um, law or business but but they tend to teach things still uh, in in a conceptual academic framework that is not uh, resonating with the newer generations or the newer generation. And that's one thing you touch upon in your book, uh, which I really thought was great, this whole notion of of changing the old story. And I think that maybe in the beginning here we could talk a little bit about your th- your thinking on this, what is the old story And why do we need to change it? And by old story, I mean the old story of training of leadership. So what what is the old story? Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is that we all know that the uh, old story consists of hierarchical, top-down, command and control kind of stuff, which basically was developed mostly by the Roman Catholic Church. People don't realize that, but... Uh, they always attribute this to the military, but the military certainly picked it up. But really, the Roman Catholic Church uh, developed the top-down system of uh, autocratic control. And we've used that, of course, and we've eased up on it over the years. But the problem is, 
we still have that idea embedded in our heads. So it's kind of like the default. We experiment with other more innovative ways, but in the end, when push comes to shove, we go back to that system. Yeah. And, you know, over the years, I think what I've realized is that here's, here's the iterations. It started with management. We realized we don't need to manage. We need to lead. So then we started to get, about 40 years ago, a really large industry built around the whole idea of leadership. I'll come back to this, but it's $170 billion a year right now. That's what we're spending on leadership development. Wow. There are two, 244,000 books on leadership on Amazon.com. Jeez. So we are, we are awash in leadership. Yeah. And <clears throat> leadership is not working. So you don't have to look very far. Wall Street, uh, Washington, healthcare, academia, uh, the church, just about everywhere you look, we have broken leadership. So all this work and effort we put into leadership has actually not worked. And so now you have to wonder, okay, so what is it we're really looking for? What we're really looking for is what I've described in this book and a couple of earlier books, which is inspiration. What we're yearning for is to be inspired. Now, the old model, the old story, is based on motivation, which is about fear. I want you to change your behavior, i.e. buy my product, or hit your sales targets, or vote for me. And if you do, I will give you some kind of bonus, reward, safety, whatever the, 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 the treat might be. So we're really working with kind of a Pavlovian old-fashioned system here. Right. And what, what we are really looking to do is to change that completely so that we move from motivation to inspiration. So they, those two are often confused, but actually they're quite different. So motivation is a fear-based system. Inspiration is a love-based system. And what we're yearning for is inspiration. So if you think about the current political system that we're, we're wrestling with right now, we're looking for inspiring leaders. We can't find them. The same thing in corporate America, the same thing in academia. And if you think about it, everything we've ever done in our lives has come back to inspiring people, whether it's our parents, whether it's a, a church minister, whether it's uh, uh, someone who is a, a guide or a counselor or a coach or a mentor. These are people who inspired you. Well, I, I want to I jump in here because I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. And when I was given your book, I immediately had that thought that we are really lacking in today's world the great leader. And we, we, we forget sometimes that this country and the world at large um, would not be where it's at. And I'm really speaking of the U.S. right now because I, I don't know as much about Canada. Um, but we would not be here except for great leaders. And you could you could name three of them off the right off the top would be which would be George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And we are and and when you look around, we are missing uh, that that person. And even right. globally, even globally, there is really a leadership vacuum. Right. And and I often think about well, and I'm going to ask you the question: Why why is that, Lance? Why do you think we're, we have this vacuum? Well, uh, we have it because we have treated leadership as if it were engineering. Yeah. So if you think about it, we teach leadership as a set of tactics, functions, and activities. So we say, here are the 10 leadership uh, 
traits or the 10 leadership competencies. This is a very popular term these days in modern uh, corporations. And we teach it, so if you do these 10 things, you'll be a great leader. Now, it's interesting, by the way, and this my more recent book is called A Love Story, and, and we touch, I touch indirectly on that. And the reason that's important is that if you think about a romantic relationship at home, a great romantic relationship, and then compare that to the characteristics of a great leader, they're nothing like that. In other words, the things that we do or say we should do as leaders at work, we would never do elsewhere. You'd never do a performance review at home. You would never do something like talking about holding people accountable. These are leadership characteristics and languages, right? right. And yet, we would never do that anywhere else in our lives. So we've imported a really strange engineering-type thinking into modern organizations. We've got a herd mentality, so we read about it in Harvard Business Review and say, oh, that's the, the thing we should be doing now. So everybody does that. So we end up with mission statements and value statements and all those things that are now common in modern organizations. And then there's one other main thing that we've, we've forgotten, and that is the idea of oneness. So we think of work as a separate thing, and we think of life generally as functioning with separate parts you know, separate salespeople or customers are separate from the company and so on. But that's an illusion. In fact, it's, it's all connected. And what we've forgotten is that wholeness, that one view of everything. So don't say something in an email to an internal employee if you don't want that to reach a customer, because it will. Yeah. Yeah, and well... And will blush it that way. Yeah, I mean, there, this, is a, this is a rich issue, and and I raise it because I think it's one of the big problems of our era absolutely and i i go back to uh to be you know this is not a political show but i but there really is i don't really have any limits to what we could talk about but i go back to um george w bush's decision to invade iraq mm -hmm. and at the time uh it was considered to be a tough guy sort of move he had this, uh, you know, being from Texas, he had that um, that that sort of tough guy motif, something along the lines of, you know, if you're not if you're not with us, you're against us. And right. he was and he was trying to show courage. And I I had actually written a letter to the editor um, of to the Chicago Tribune on this, and the and the letter was something like uh, true care, uh, true care. True courage, excuse me, true courage is admitting that you're wrong. And that's something that we, we see that these leaders cannot do. For some reason, and this is my own opinion, for some reason this this never having to say you're sorry mentality has infiltrated these people we call leaders. Yes. And, and to me, so much could be saved by simply saying I was wrong. We we were mistaken. We misread the data, or or I had it, or I or I I I, uh, I misunderstood what he or she said. And, now, and if somebody said that to you, would you be inspired? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now there you have the key. Yeah. That yes. is the key. Yeah. That's what we're looking for. Right. So you see, the thing that's really interesting that I've discovered about this, and it's really <clears throat> it's sort of stunning to me to sort of think about this this way. But what we're all yearning for is that relationship 
of inspiration because it's at the core of everything. So think about your favorite coffee shop. You go there because you're inspired by the coffee or by the people or the location or the experience. Right. You fall in love with people that are inspiring. You work for companies that are inspiring. You hang out with friends that are inspiring. You eat foods that inspire you. You listen to music that inspires you. <clears throat> you go to relationships with nature, for example, or with God that inspires you. And the moment that it doesn't inspire you anymore, you leave it. So that relationship of inspiration is the key to everything. And that is something that we can really focus on and understand. It's more than, by the way, material and earthly. It is spiritual. Because the feeling we have when you're, for example, inspired by a sonata or a poem isn't a worldly kind of feeling. It's bigger than that. And that's what we're yearning for, that inspiring relationship. So I think that's what we had with Kennedy. Whether or not he was a good president or not is another matter, but <clears throat> he was able to create that feeling with us, especially with the whole Camelot thing and right. uh, you know, with Jackie and so on. So you know, and Reagan had the same effect. So w what we're looking for is inspiration, and very often what happens, you see, with Reagan, for example, good, good illustration, a, a good presidential outcome comes from inspiration. The fact that we were inspired gives him the elbow room to do the job. Obama, for example, though he's inspiring, has never had that elbow room, and as a consequence, hasn't been able to do the job. Yeah, well, I think that this is this is a a, um, a lot of things are are going through my my head right now, and what you're saying, and and one, and I'll start off with one of them, uh, which is sort of the more of an observation, which is that I find that uh, there is a relationship between aging. And I'm trying to think of a better better word than aging. I, I think I'm going to start using the word experienced. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, between having life experience and moving towards a holistic uh, approach, the 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 one thing I mean, I I know I notice that you've been doing what you're doing for a long time, and it it strikes me that not only those of you in the in this field and I, I let, me, let me call it the leadership field mm -hmm. but those in science as well it, it's it's remarkable to me that over time people as they have more life experience they do move towards more towards a picture of holism or mysticism or spirituality or whatever you want to call it more of a it's 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 about all of us not about one person and I, I say that because the, the I think connected to this notion of inspiration, Lance, is that inspiration, I think, is more powerful if it's connected with, as you would put it, one dream or one one common goal. And, and, and I think about, I mean, I think about Adolf Hitler being the epitome of a strong leader that had a... Uh, how can I put this? That had a a a wicked objective. Yeah. I mean, he was a strong leader, but talking <laughs> about talking about leading for division, and, mm -hmm. and and so so I think that's that is also what's lacking. I see it, which is which is we're we're lacking a common vision 
Uh, so, so what do you think? Good so example of what I was saying earlier, where we uh, have the herd mentality of saying, oh, we need a mission statement. Now, a mission statement is the most banal thing you can think of. Yeah. You know, and they all tend to sound the same and so yeah. on. And I can tell you, I live uh, half the year uh, each year in uh, Colorado. I have a home there, and I, I'm a passionate skier. And during November, uh, Co- Copper Mountain, where I uh, ski, is the headquarters of the U.S. national ski team. So it has a World Cup race run, which is the only one in the world in November. And all the teams from all over the world come to train there. So you've got the best skiers on the planet all in one town. Plus you have all the youngsters, the camps and so on, because they all come as well. So there might be two or three hundred uh, groups of youngsters there as well. So you've got an incredible array of people on the mountain who are brilliant skiers. Now, I can tell you, those little six-year-olds do not have a mission statement. Yeah. They, they have a dream. Yeah. That they wouldn't get to the Olympics with a mission statement. Yeah. So the whole idea, and this is one of the discoveries we made in our work, was we're just boring the pants off people with mission statements. We're not inspiring them. What they yearn for, and think of great organizations like, say, Disney, Southwest Airlines, Starbucks. These were organizations built on a dream. Apple, Google. Yeah. Facebook. You yeah. know, these, are, these are organizations where an individual had a dream. Walt Disney had a dream and built a corporation that way. A dream is incredibly powerful. Martin Luther King had a dream. I mean, there, you can go through history and see where that made a difference. And so what we've been doing is creating dreams for organizations and for cities, by the way, which has turned out into a remarkable success because it's inspiring. Yeah, I, I, I tell you one thing. You are speaking to the choir, um, or preaching to the choir, whatever the metaphor is, um, the on the mission statements and on performance appraisals. I mean, I myself have have come out of the corporate world. I'm still working in the corporate world. I'm a lawyer, but I've worked for a corporation as well. And from the beginning, mission statements... Uh, have been the most banal. I completely agree with you. It's it's sort of like a cookie cutter um, approach where you pick right. a word from a couple col- a couple words from a couple columns and out and out pops a mission statement that may have no connection. I think this may be the key. To, the key that may have no connection to the people or mm-hmm. what they really want to do mm-hmm. or or what the the objective of the of the business is. But it sounds good. And then and so that is it. But on the other hand. It, it to me it's a it was a start, at least it's a start in trying to coalesce the energy of a business towards some goal, but but I I, I also you know I'm done with mission statements. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though my current firm has one, I don't like it. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I will make a move to change it at one point, <laughs> but but I just don't like it. And then and then I have to say something about performance appraisals. And for those who have have uh, been the subject of one or given them, which would probably be about ninety eight percent of the people who are right. who are working, uh, they are terrible. I mean, I completely agree that it's sort of talking about making a person into a multiple choice exam. Um, you know, and, and what makes it worse to me is is this tendency. Well, you can't give somebody the highest uh, rating because you have to give them something to improve towards, and and it it, it makes people into um, you know sort of uh, robots, or it it mechanizes 
a process that is really not subject to that kind of categorization. So it's demeaning, right? Right. It's, and you know, if you remember what I was saying earlier about you would never do these things anywhere else in your life. Yeah. You would never sit down with a friend and say, "Well, now we're going to sit down and talk about uh, your performance and you know, how things are been uh, unfolding over the last six months and what your goals are for the next six months." We're going to talk about your budget and so on. I mean, you would if you did that with your wife, you'd last about two seconds. Yeah. There's just if you wouldn't do it at home or wouldn't do it with your friends, why would you think about doing it at work? Why would we do things, in other words, that are uninspiring? We should basically put a filter on the corporate world and say, anything that's uninspiring, stop it. Yeah, I, I love I love that. Yeah, think I, about how you would do this in an inspiring way, including if you're going to have to fire somebody, pause, stop, and say, how will I do this in a way that is going to inspire the other person. Yeah. Robert Greenleaf had this wonderful expression. He said, will what I'm about to say improve on the silence? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, that is, that is really good. Well, let's, I mean, there is there is a lot here. Now, let's let's talk a little bit about how do you inspire? What is the right way to do it? Well, the, the, I'm sure there's lots of right ways, but I don't want to be so arrogant to say my way is the only right way. But I think that the, the way I think of it is that there are three steps. The first step, which I call the spark, is we have to become inspired ourselves. Now, most theories say that you don't need to do that, that, that basically what you need to do is you're a leader, therefore you have to be inspiring all the time. Well, nice theory, but that isn't the way life works. So if you've got a crappy situation going on at home or you don't feel well or whatever, or things aren't going your way, you, it's hard to be inspiring all the time. Right. So you have to work first on filling your own tank, making sure you're fully inspired. And we do that with three things. We do it by identifying who we are, why we're here, what we're going to do with our lives. And we call this the why we do, destiny, character, and calling. And it's a way, and I've done, I discovered this by researching great leaders over history and contemporary leaders as well, and everybody that has done an extraordinary job of leadership has a very clear personal sense of why they're here and what their purpose, their higher purpose in life is. And I, when I say higher purpose, I mean not just on this planet, but beyond. What is the big linking factor? In other words, what's your conversation with God? Uh, the second step is to have a dream both at a corporate level and at a personal level. A dream is inspiring. A dream is something that we get up in the morning and we say, ah, I've got a dream. I'm going to work for a company that has a dream. And by the way, it's the only thing. You don't need you know, missions, vision, value statements, and all the rest of those things. Dump all those. Just have a dream. And thirdly, it's about building inspiring relationships. It's stunning to me when I work with organizations how few people actually like the people they work with. And we need to change that so that our relationships are inspiring and we need to teach each other how to be inspiring all the time. So if you live in a life where you have a dream, where you know why you're here and you have a fiery sense of, of, a, of achieving that, and you also have inspiring relationships, that fills your tank. Now you're in a position to go and inspire other people, and that's the flame. And the flame is inspiring others, and we do that by practicing six simple ideas. We call these the castle principles. And we discovered these by asking people what they didn't like about leaders, and here's what they said. I don't like cowards. 
I don't like people who are phony. I don't like people who are selfish. I don't like people who lie. I don't like people who rule with fear, and I don't like idiots. Hmm. Now, those six criteria are, you know, describe about 60% of leaders. And we said, well, let's stop doing that. Let's do, in fact, the opposite. And the opposite looks like this. Courage, authenticity, service, truthfulness, love, and effectiveness. In other words, we love leaders. Actually, we love all people who are courageous, authentic, serve others, tell the truth, are loving and effective. If we live this way, we will inspire others. And then lastly, we have the torch, which is how we inspire the world. And then we get to the subjects you were talking about around coaching, mentoring, growing people, and managing uh, the, the growth and development of other people because they go out into the world and change it. Yeah, I, so that's the journey. Yeah, I think I think that's great. And what what Lance just did was to really give a succinct outline of his book, and it's very well thought out. And it it's one of the more I mean, just reading it, you could tell that it's the product of a lot of experience. Now, I want to do a contrast here first from my own experience, just to show that uh, how wrong things are in the corporate world so we could contrast that with with applying these these newer methods and uh, I was in a program oh but it must have been 15 years ago and this is in a big law firm where we were um, identified as coaches and we went through coaching training and what we and who we were who we were supposed to be coaching other lawyers now they they weren't necessarily younger lawyers they were typically lawyers who weren't as productive and so we went through coaching training and we went through scenarios where we we're supposed to be talking to these people about how to be better and we were given scripts and we were graded and I remember going through this and then after it was done I just ignored the whole thing because it was so it was so unrealistic mm-hmm. and it was so un- it felt so uncomfortable and I simply, I simply told my coachee, I said, I'm supposed to be coaching you, but I'm not going to because I don't think it's the right thing to do. And I didn't really have any profound, I don't think I had any profound statement. But, but, but my point is to, to underscore something you've been saying, Lance, both on now and in your book, is that many of these old age principles just do not fit. They right. just don't, they, they don't fit right. And right. I, and I think that that, you know, it's sort of like if if food doesn't taste good, you stop eating it. The song doesn't suit you, you stop listening to it. And if these messages that the, the old school leadership training folks are giving don't resonate, then people stop following them. And and so so I think that this is this is really itself inspiring to see that there's other ways to go about accomplishing these goals. Um, and so so that's my contrast now. Moving to the next step, I think uh, the challenge here from, from, from what I could tell is that in order to really be an effective leader, the leader, him or herself, has to be inspired in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Right? right? This is sort of like that's if you... if Right, that's a spark. If you, if you have somebody uh, who doesn't like their job, say an accountant, you know, someone who's, who's gone into accounting because their parents or father was an accountant and they're put in a position of management if they're not in, if they're not themselves inspired it's really not going to work is that mm-hmm. is that right 
Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, they're not there. You have no spark. Right. So now you're working from an empty tank. How yeah. do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. So it it begin it begins with so the leader has to be inspired, and and that, and so so that leader then sparks, the, the the, the his uh, his team so to speak. Yes, right? that's right. And okay. it's the spark that's in you now that lights the flame, which can then be transferred to others because that's how we relate to others. But I'm thinking that, for instance, if you go home and you are at in your home, in your relationships with those in your family, if you're courageous, if you're authentic, if you serve others, if you tell the truth, if you're loving and you're effective, you'll be inspiring. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Lance Secretan, the author of the great leadership book called The Spark, the Flame, and the Torch, and we're talking about really new age methods to inspire people to follow their calling, and there's a lot of terminology here. There's a lot of principles, but it all follows this logic of the spark, the flame, and the torch. Now, on the level of inspiration one thing or on and and the flame and the these two uh, components one the one part of your book that really hit me over the head because it's so similar to my own book is the one dream mm-hmm. and i i like i think this is extremely important you know we talked about a little bit and you've mentioned it but I think I'd like to unwrap this a little bit more because folks may not understand really how the one dream contrasts with this old age mission statement or mm-hmm. or whatever the corporate vision is. Uh, right. And so I think that, you know, to me, uh, for for my own purpose, I don't think we could survive as as humankind unless there is a common vision there ha- i mean so i i bring this but it has to start somewhere it has to start maybe in the grassroots here but but why not, but why don't you talk a little bit more about how you came to this notion of the one dream or the common dream well one of the things i i guess there are two things we've sort of touched on them already one is that i noticed the just rolling of eyes that people have around mission statements and i used to play a game years ago with corporations where i would ask an audience inside the same organization tell me your mission statement and most of them couldn't do it yeah and there was this horrible sort of mumbly uh, garbled hmm. bunch of words that people would say and I, you know it's just kind of like if i stopped uh, in an orchestra and said tap 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 you know like what music are we playing? If I got a garbled answer back, what kind of music would we make? Yeah. And that's how it is in most organizations. I realized it just simply wasn't working. And then the other thing I noticed is, as I told you earlier about the skiers, but I've seen it in lots of other places, people who are fired up and inspired, they have a dream. So then the question became, well, you know, t- take a city like Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas had a dream. Their dream was to be the live music capital of the world. Today they are. Yeah. Now Austin is a really unusual city that way. It, you can feel the vibe when you're in Austin. 
there's something going on there that is an energy that makes that an exciting town. Now, who would have thought, you know, Austin, Texas is not exactly, uh, you know, I don't want to be rude here, but, it, you know, it's not a, a city that jumps to my head when I think about great cities. And yet, it is a great city, and it has that greatness because of the dream. Honestly, the dream powered the whole thing. That's who they are today. Now, you can say that, too, about a lot of organizations. And what's happened, though, is that we can't just take the old ideas of how we get a mission statement. In other words, we get a group of people in, we hire a consultant, and we end up with a slogan. That won't work. A dream is not like that. A dream has a whole different mechanism for how we get there, and it's a higher order of thinking. So the first thing we need to do in our language is to identify something we call permission space. Now, you can't build a dream if you don't have permission for it. And permission means the freely given energy that will come from all of the people you depend upon to achieve your dream. So in a corporate setting, for example, this would mean unions, it would mean competitors, it would mean regulators, it would mean uh, the media, it would mean anybody who you're going to depend on to achieve your success. You need that. Now, let me give you just a quick example. You talked about George W. Bush earlier. Um, yes, we have a war on terror. Uh, that was that was the out, outcome desired. And at that time, I would say maybe 80% of the American population was in favor of that. In other words, the permission space is very big. Yeah. Four years later, same strategy, war on terror, but the permission space had disappeared. It was not like 80%, it was more like 20%. People were just not interested in going to Afghanistan and Iraq. And you can't keep the same strategy going when you lose your permission space. So the result of that was he lost the election. Yeah. Now, that's going to happen. That's always going to happen. And so, you know, in the, in the sense that we, don't, we just think we can get to a dream and, and invent it and make it up in a room somewhere, that's not going to happen. You have to identify the permission space. And there's a whole technical modality for that, which I won't get into here. But once you've got the permission space, now you know that that's your platform that you can now build a dream on. So it's actually very rational and quite rigorous. It's not airy-fairy. And that dream then becomes very robust because everybody knows how it was created. It has logic behind it. It's rational. And you can now build something very extraordinary with it. So I've seen this happen in organizations. I have a client called Humana. They have a dream. I worked with them on creating that dream in 2008. Uh, their sales at that time were 15 billion. They're close to 60 billion now. And they will tell you that you know, the quadrupling of their revenues as a corporation came from their dream. Yeah, I can't. I can't tell you how how important this how important I think this is. And and I'm I'm not the only person who who's been through the corporate old story mode here, but it helps that that I that I've seen this. And the the classic contrast to me is the sales uh, quotas where uh, a salesperson having hit ha having sold 1000 widgets his his goal for the next year is to sell 2000 widgets and it becomes purely quantitative right. as opposed to now I'm going to call it saw I'm going to call it a softer goal like becoming the the music capital of the world or the live music capital of the world 
in Austin situation, and then I think that you have something for the Louisville, um, it's yes. Southern Indiana, which I right. forget what that was called. But the but these these other these um, these softer or more inspiring goals to me are so much more productive, and the, and there's they're they're so much more effective. There's another word of yours yeah and because those i mean frankly i have never seen anybody inspired by having a higher quota right that to me talking about instilling fear yes anyone who's been on a quota it is it is debilitating and well, that's motivation yeah exactly Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly. You know, and, and, and that's, right. you see, the thing that's so interesting about all this is that if you track this backwards, we started this whole journey about 120 years ago with Pavlov and B.F. Yep. Skinner and the other behavioral scientists who right. figured out that if you uh, hold up a carrot, then you can get a, a certain result. Or if you ring a bell, a dog will salivate. In other words, it's a cause and effect, mechanical engineering type approach to changing human behavior. We have not learned anything new since then, 120 years, because we're doing exactly the same thing today. We, in our leadership, like you talked about sales quotas, that's just that's ringing a bell and making a dog salivate. Same yep. thing. Yep. And if you look at compensation plans and reward systems, human resource policies, they're all about reward and punishment. And if you look at leadership theory, it's exactly the same. So, so we're very stuck in that old paradigm. Breaking out of that, away from motivation and into inspiration, is the key. Because, you know, when people get behind a dream and they find it inspiring, a quote is irrelevant. They'll do whatever they have to do to get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's something here that I think sports is, is a good example. And I'm reminded of, of uh, the, the recent U.S. Open golf tournament where um, – Heinrich Stenson beat uh, Phil Mickelson, and yeah. a, at the end there, and and Mickelson was, uh, uh, you know, sort of um, applauding Stenson. He was, um, you know, they were, sh- you know, they they it, it felt like Mickelson was genuinely genuinely uh, happy that Stenson had won. Why? Because it was a good tournament. It was a good. It was good for the game, mm-hmm. and and so. I think that's what's lacking lacking in our current uh, society mm-hmm. is is this notion of can we be Democrat Republican and 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 both win in the end? We mm-hmm. we we have this us versus them, this uh, hardcore top down leadership style where people. And I think, frankly, I think a lot of folks are frustrated, including the the newer generation, mm-hmm. with the lack of inspiration from the dream standpoint. And that's sort of we're sort of coming back to how we started this, which is, which is the which is the which is the the lack the absence of a real leader. And I I'm gonna say one more thing. Let you comment on this, which is that. Part of the problem in my the way I look at this is not only the media with with the us them um, sort of favoritism of of the media which loves a good fight, but the 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 time it takes to inspire. And, and because it, is it is it true in your and, and let me ask you this specific question: Do you think that 
the inspirational approach takes longer. And, and is, is that one of the problems that you're encountering? Well, it depends what you mean, I think. Um, if you think that solving the problem that you're facing is, is achieved by saying to someone, if you don't achieve your quota, I'm going to fire you, that doesn't take long. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. It's very short, but you have to look a bit further than that. What's the damage you create? What's the morale crisis you create? What's the overflow of energy? How does this person talk about you to their friends in the bar or their friends at home or when they travel, when they're on vacation and so on? How much damage have you created? That's what I mean about oneness and holistic thinking. It isn't just about you and that person. So it, it, it depends what you're counting. If I say to you, tell me, I think you're struggling a little with your sales. How can I support you? How can I serve you? What would I, could I do that would inspire you? Yes, that might take a little longer, but you might get your results faster and you have a lot less damage. Yeah. So how do we count this, you see? I think that's the issue. And I think what we're doing in the, in the uh, cycle where we look at corporate results every 90 days and we evaluate people every six months and so on, people are doing, and I've, I've had this, actually had CEOs say this to me, you know, I don't have to worry about this because it's outside of the time range that is relevant here. So don't don't have me do that. It's not important. Yeah. I'll be gone by then. You know, so that's how we're thinking today in this short-term engineering uh, kind of mindset. And I'm not saying I don't want to be t seen as someone who's bad-mouthing engineering. I don't mean that at all. But I just mean that people are not widgets, and we can't deal with people, or for that matter, the universe, that way. It's much the same way as we're dealing with climate change, you know, that we, we think, oh, it's no problem to make 15 million cars, and uh, that's, that's no issue. On the other hand, if we had a really good road transport system or rail transport system as an alternative, we might do something good for the, for the environment. But we're focused on the 90-day results about how many cars can we produce and how much employment does that generate and so on. And the result, of course, is devastating. Well, you're exactly, I think you're exactly right that it has to it has to be from the leadership it has it, this this message this change in approach from from this uh, command and control carrot and stick to inspiration is really is really a leadership function because as you were as you were talking there i was thinking you know anybody could pick up a book or an outline stand in front of a room of, of salespeople and say, increase your sales by 10% this year, and if you don't, you're going to be put on probation. Mm -hmm. Anybody could say that. Right. It doesn't have to be Winston Churchill. It could be the person off the street. Right. But but if someone stands in front of the room and says, and says uh, our goal this year is to serve our customers and to fulfill the promise that they put in us and our products, or something right. like that, some some more inspiring statement, right? right. Uh, and, you know, and go out there and serve the customer. I mean that th that is a softer approach, but at the end of the year, um, whether your sales go up or down, I'm not sure. But you're going to have more employees. <laughs> Who are going to be happier? <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the way I've that that's that's the way I've seen things because yeah. because this command and control is is really it, it's 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 really an uncomfortable 
I mean, except if maybe if you're in the military where you have to do that, or or you put it maybe engineering, but but even even in engineering, there's creativity. Yeah, of course there is. So of course there is, and a sense of connectedness to something bigger right. than just the next metric. Right, right, right. And and there's a, and how about there seems to be. Um, Another nice thing about this, there's probably an unlimited space for dreams. There's no, you don't conflict with each other. You right. don't, right? you know, I mean, I see that um, in, in law and also I think in the cell phone business, you know, there's a lot of cannibalization of customers. Mm-hmm. Go out there, you, because we, because everyone already has a cell phone, the only way we're going to grow is to steal other people's business. You know, that, yeah. that is, that is, I'm sure you've heard that when I've heard it. And it's you know, it's tough. It's it is yes. a t- it, it is a till of the hun like approach. Yes, and it's totally unnecessary because if you you may remember when Steve Jobs was asked about why he didn't do any research, he said, you know, if I had done research into what people were looking for, they would have never said I want an iPhone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They had no idea that, that yeah. such a thing was even possible. Yeah. And <clears throat> I wouldn't be surprised if in a few years' time we're. We're actually merging cell phones and, and computers, so they're actually the same thing. I heard the other day that there's a, I think it's Samsung that has developed a 60 terabyte uh, SSD chip, hmm. which is, you know, today a five a 512 uh, mega, uh, gigabyte is a big one. Right. <laughs> and, you know, 60 terabytes is just unbelievable. So hmm. you, if you could squish all that into something by the size of a of a, a pinky fingernail <clears throat> and planted in behind your ear, <clears throat> you'd have a uh, you'd be mobile and you'd reinvent everything, and then it wouldn't be any more about stealing customers. It would be inventing reinventing the game. That's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that ultimately, the more people you inspire, the the happier people are, the happier the world is. I mean, without getting all touchy feely about this, but but the. You know, it, it comes down to this um, point, and you, I think you start your book off by talking about that guy who, the Paulson, who had this gigantic yeah. payday. I mean, yeah. $3.7 billion in one year, right. and that which is incredibly grotesque. Yeah. Uh, and because it's sort of like, well, that was great for him, um, but what did that do to improve the world? Well, also, somebody had to lose that money because right, in yeah. that game, there are winners and losers. Yeah. And, you know, somebody is not feeling good about losing $3.9 billion. Yeah. So, you know, in the stock market, when you, when you have a, uh, you know, you make a lot of money, somebody lost a lot of money. So it, it's just, a, you know, swings and roundabouts kind of a situation. And I think that we don't, in that case, take account of the whole. Now, we are beginning to realize that in that case, I don't know about that particular instance, but 3.9 billion people $3.9 billion that people lost, that's an angry group of people. And yeah. that's a group of people that are actually now flexing their muscles. Yeah. Yeah, well, anybody who's, um, if you haven't seen the movie The Big Short or the read the book, you've yes. got, you got to read. You got those, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great book. And I, I'd like to, uh, as we're nearing the end here, talk a little bit about the future. And because... All this, all these things we talk about, paradigm shifts and changing the, the story to a new story, I mean, ultimately, there has to be some, 
some concretization, some yes. formation of these ideas, uh, or else all we're all we're doing is spinning our wheels. And you know, for those of us in this field, uh, I know I would not be doing this unless I really thought change was possible and necessary. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I have this quote from your book uh, that says um, something like that: "We're emerging from." One of the most self-absorbed eras in in human history. I, I like I like you to talk a little bit about how you how you see things in, uh, going forward here. Uh, where what you think uh, needs to happen, and I'm I'm almost inclined. You know, we haven't talked about religion or science very much, although we have mentioned some of the spirituality components here. Yes. But clearly, science and religion and leaders of those two fields have a lot to say about about uh, our current mindset and have a, have a big influence on this. But, uh, but without leading you in one direction or the other, what do you see coming down the pike here in the future? How do you, is, it, is it generational? Is there going to be new ideas? I mean, what, what do you see in the future here, Lance? Well, I think there's a big difference. Let's just touch on one subject uh, first, and that's the difference between religion and spirituality. I think religion has got us into a lot of trouble. Yeah. And most of our wars right now are about religion, and you know we would see it as uh, the Muslim world, in particular, uh, as an adversary to our world. But they would see it the other way around. Sort of, they see us as crusaders, you know, from the tw- uh, 13th century, right. uh, as Christian marauders that uh, want to destroy their their life and so on. So. Uh, regardless of who's right about this, uh, it's creating a problem for us. We need to get above that to a point where we're talking about spirituality. And I think, yes, of course, there are religions that inform that, but they need to be inspiring, and they don't need to focus on uh, uh, killing and aggression, which we all do. It's not just the, the, the jihadists that do this. We all do it. So... You know, that's one thing. I think we need to get past that, and uh, our religious leaders need to get to a place where they're more spiritual. And I think that we've lost that a bit along the way. Now, you also touched earlier about the whether it is top-down or grassroots, and I think it's both. And I think that one of the things we've noticed in the evolution of organizations is that a small group of people within an organization can actually make a big difference. And, you know, Margaret Mead uh, talked about that in her famous quote. And I think that we need to not underestimate the fact that a small group of people can say, you know, this is a really interesting idea. We should experiment with it in this department. And then that department starts to take off. And so other people look at it and say, hey, what's happening in that department? We need to do what they're doing. And now the whole thing grows from the bottom up. Now, it can happen the other way, too. But either way, it works. And then one other part of this I think that's important, we've got to really start understanding very young people. You've got to remember that the April spring in the Middle East started with 12-year-olds. Those 12-year-olds were writing code and manipulating the Internet in a way that caused the revolution. Now, that power is the power that we as older folks in our society don't get and don't understand because we don't know how to operate that way, but they do. And they can have incredible impact on change. I'm sure that the next revolution will be one that comes from young people using the power of the Internet. 
look at WikiLeaks and so on. Yeah. So the power of this to make change, what I love about the Internet, is that it's our conscience. We never had a conscience before. But we've got a conscience now that's new. And you can't say anything in an email. You can't uh, go and rob a bank. You can't knock somebody down on the street in your car. You can't do any of those things anymore. You can't even make a cell phone call without it being a public thing. So you better do it right because you're going to get found out if you don't. Now, that didn't used to be the case. We could hide secrets all over the place before. That's going to help us enormously because bad behavior in organizations simply won't be tolerated. It'll be outed. And that we'll see that we're seeing that starting to happen now. So I think it's very positive because I think we actually hit a wall. And the, 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 the statistics are terrible. You know, job satisfaction, staff turnover, the duration of a CEO's tenure, all these statistics are all down and in, in bad shape. And I could remark tons of them. And, you know, the, the effectiveness of leadership is, is directly uh, inversely correlated to the amount of money we're spending on leadership training right now. So all of these things are in the wrong direction, which means people are going to scratch their heads and say, this isn't working. Why would we be doing this? Why don't we do something different? And what that different thing might be is perhaps inspiration or, or at least something else, which is not a repeat of what we've been doing. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's encouraging. And, I, you know, there has to be some hope in the equation here. And... I am encouraged by the new generation. Uh, they definitely think differently. Uh, it, it's clear that we have a lot of old school um, entrenched ideas, particularly right. from religion. It's really right. ridiculous right. When, when, when you think about how archaic some of the religions are, and I don't want to uh, denigrate any religion, but but to but to base a society upon a book that's fifteen hundred years old mm-hmm. is is nobody would do that. Uh, and science is in many ways the same as yeah. more and more people are exposing the yeah. entrenched ideas of science. And and on that note, I I think my own book, The Collapse of Materialism, discusses that. And uh, my next guest is going to be the author of Cosmos Sapiens, John Hands. Uh, who has written a book uh, that I'm reading right now that is on this very topic, which discusses the entrenched ways of modern science. And so, and but I I also have come to the conclusion, Lance, that it has to be both grassroots and top down. I mm-hmm. have always focused on the the top down. I'm I'm the type that thinks the thought leaders have to be changed, and I do think that that has to be done. But I that's in many ways a generational issue. I, I say all the time on this show that I think it was Eugene Wigner who said that science progresses funeral by funeral. You know, sometimes um, it takes a long time to change the thoughts, but it but the the internet is so fast. Mm-hmm. It is inst- it is unbelievable uh, the way the messages and the information gets transferred. And as you say, everybody yep. ha- everybody has a voice. And and they don't and those messages are not deleted. They're and it's there. unforgiving too. Yeah, yeah. You're, you you're, can't get away with it. Yeah. Well, it it's, it says something about authenticity right there. I mean, I uh, we we haven't had a chance to to uh, talk about all all of your principles here, but this this notion of authenticity. I mean, I'm I'm coming to conclusion that uh, just being authentic, um, it may not 
yield the most payback, but it's definitely something that makes you feel good. Uh, well, and, and I think it does yield payback. I've used a number of examples in that chapter about authenticity yeah. where it literally saved tens of millions of dollars because yeah. we spin our wheels blowing smoke screens all over the place and misleading customers and so on. That, that costs a lot of money. You're yeah. a lawyer, you know that. And so, you know, the whole story about making stuff up, <clears throat> misleading people, phony marketing and all that, that lack of authenticity is very expensive. Yeah. Tell it straight, deal with it right out, off the bat, you'll save millions of dollars. Yeah, and I, I think that it's sort of, I mean, I, I, tell, um, I tell my witnesses when they testify, I tell them to tell the truth because you never have to change your story. Right. And it's something that I that carries me forward uh, that, you, you know, you may lose the short-term argument, you may lose a case here or there, but you'll you but you won't lose the, the customer who's trusting in you. So we have we have come to the end, and I hope that the listener um, got the has gotten the idea that we that Lance is another uh, category, another level of of uh, leadership trainer here. Uh, his book, as I mentioned, The Spark, The Flame, and The Torch, is inspiring. It inspired me, and I read a lot of these books, and I am not inspired by a lot of the books that I read in this area. And this is really, you're, we, are, we are really um, seeing the wisdom here of somebody who, who um, has been deep into these issues and understands the way leadership works. And uh, again, as I, as I mentioned, the paradigm shift needs to occur on all levels and I'm happy um, that I believe we are in the midst of one and at some point maybe we'll, we will uh, experience the benefits of it. Lance, I'd like to thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed this and uh, I would like to follow up with you at some point about um, getting deeper into some of these issues on later shows. So once that. I would love to do that, and I've enjoyed our conversation very much, Philip. And, uh, and once again, this is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, and we'll see you in a little bit when we'll have John Hands, the author of Cosmos Sapiens, with us. Take care. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.